I love lobbying. I love the idea of representing people and helping them influence Congress and you know around a certain set of issues, whatever they might be. can't believe it's been almost two years since we've had an episode of 80 Proof Politics, but I got to tell you folks, it just was not the same. You saw those Zoom episodes. They were great. Stuart Roy in the audience tonight participated in one, and I thought they did a fantastic job, but you know, this, was, this whole premise was about being with the people to make this town work. It was sitting down, telling stories over a drink at their favorite place, and that obviously wasn't happening during the pandemic. So tonight, we're back. Season 3, Episode 1, broadcasting from a secret location south of Alexandria, Virginia, commonly known around the neighborhood as the Blue Smoke Lounge. It's basically my backyard. And with me tonight is an old friend who has made a fantastic career in this town, Mike Bergman. Mike, cheers, brother. Great to see you. It's great to be here, Bill, in the... Uh the shack in the back, breaking it in for 80 proof politics. Um, I, I am uh, honored to be here to be your first guest after the pandemic and to be here in person to do this. Oh, it's only appropriate that you're here because it's just, it's just, you know, first of all, it's appropriate because you had such a storied career in still spirits industry. And we're going to get to that in a little bit, but I want to talk to you now about your new career. Mike is president and founder of Swamp Pilot Strategies here in Washington. And first of all, tell me about the name. Over the last decades, people have labeled the place that I have, you know, prospered a swamp. Mm -hmm. And a bit derogatory to some, uh, but to me and to some others, you know, one, one person's swamp is another person's paradise. And I've been navigating that swamp for the last 30 years. It's what's driven me. It's been, you know, I, I love Capitol Hill. I love Congress. I love everything about the members, staff, the way the whole process works. It, it you know, it's not a derogatory. It's not, it's not a, a negative. And influencing them isn't negative either. And they need guidance. And that's why a swamp navigator is needed to help them get from concept to consumer concept to a law. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've stood back on the banks of this swamp as people have tried to drain it over the last two decades. And I've filled it back with bourbon and wafted a little <laughs> cigar smoke to make a foggy effect. You know, so my new venture, it's a lobbying shop. It's one man right now, one, one swamp pilot. Uh, it's going to be old school shoe leather. Uh, you know, take a good idea to the hill, try to convince people to to agree with us and if we got to move legislation get 50 votes plus you know 50 percent plus one vote and, and win things for my clients uh but so that's what it is it's it's just helping people navigate this perception that there's a swamp here well 50 percent uh, plus one is what the game's all about these absolutely days, that's so exactly true. right well yeah you touched on the basic premise of 80 proof politics right there we're pulling back the curtain to find out how people like you are helping others navigate yeah. this town yeah influence isn't a dirty word it's not a four-letter word. It's okay for us to be here and have the vocation of lobbyists and be proud of it. You know, we are here representing the, the lives and livelihoods of 
millions of people, depending on what we do. Now, of course, I spent the last two decades trying to make August National Happy Hour Month, which, uh, you know, I have not... not I, I, it's, a, it's a fiscal... Why, why, it's a, uh, why were we limiting well, to one month? Well, it's a little too kitschy. That's true. But, you know, I, I have had this concept around ways and means of finance, guys. The fact is that the, all these folks that want to make people drink less... They ought to people, you know, help people drink just a little bit more. You know, for every one drink more you drink, you're you're getting more excise tax. You're it's a revenue raiser for us to now all in moderation, all in do it in a way that's you know legal to get get you get a ride home, Uber, whatever. But the fact is, you know, bad policy is getting people to drink less. We should be drinking more, and we're raising more more money because it's a highly taxed commodity. Uh, the, and the tax isn't get going down anymore. We already we took a little cut uh, a few years ago, which uh, no one saw coming. But uh, yeah, that, that the fact is, you know, people can drink. We raise money. It's a it's a it's a it's a great industry. I was great, you know, great great uh, great part of my career for the last couple decades. And well, and we're going to touch on ready, ready to move forward with Swamp Pilots. So long winded answer to get to to why I got to where I am, and uh, I'm excited about this new venture. Looking forward to betting on myself for the first time in my career. Excellent. You know, I've had an opportunity to work for a lot of really smart people, a lot of great uh, legislators, a great company, and now I want to work for myself a little bit and see what happens. You know. So tell me a bit about the things you've learned along that path that you're going to apply to this new venture. You know, um, always, always be open to things. To, to new new ideas and thoughts be be flexible um, you know not to belabor a very well uh, well driven idea these days I don't know if you follow a guy named Simon Sinek but you start with why you don't tout on the who or the what it's you know really focusing on why you do things you know you, you, you create strategies around the why you, you move forward with with the why uh, you you it's it, it you know it, it, it is that thing that pills you back to the core so your core beliefs those things are you know not about what you've done or who you are it's about you why you do things and you know that I think has been something I've learned over time uh, reading his books about leadership really have had a big impact on the way I've managed the way I lobbied the way I managed being a, a, a manager of people you know having you know clear clear goals and understanding not just goal setting or strategic thinking about that but why we're doing things if you put your why against every part of a strategy it can be a winning strategy another thing um i have learned is you know be purpose driven understand you know self-reflect on yourself understand who you are when you go into things uh you know, as part of Diageo, we did a lot of that kind of leadership training. And early on, you know, five or six years into that career, you know, I settled into a purpose. And, you know, you, 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 you go through these leadership programs. And, you know, my purpose for a long time has been I want to have at least one great idea every day and always be better tomorrow than I was today. That's a great goal. Yeah. So it's, a, you know, that is the, the premise around, you know, Again, I, I like to have great ideas. I like to you know, think about things and try to be helpful at all times, help, help my people, the people that work for me, do the same, and then oh, never plateau. Always be better tomorrow. From what I take of your career, 
you're probably going to be applying a lot more to Swamp Pilot than just pounding the halls of Congress. What's going to be your, your approach to, to fortify that line? Well, I'm going to be a strategic thinker for people who want help thinking about how to navigate this place. Um, I'm still going to lobby. I'm still going to sue leather when need for high-value meetings or where they need me to fill in. You know, I want to help them create narratives around issues that, you know, both from the public and the way they handle themselves, you know, um, what materials, how they use the 21st century technology and media this type of format and others um it's you know, the 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 roots of all this are still the same you know the delivery mechanisms might be different but you take a great idea you you develop it you 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 know you just have to give yourself a fighting chance to grab their ear whoever they are to move it, it, it you know it, it you can be controversial you can be on the wrong side and still develop a good narrative that, that still happens too so i you know i'm 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 going to be that. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to have a bit of regulatory practice. I, I can, you know, when you see the emerging issues, you know, I worked in a highly regulated industry for 22 years. With cannabis coming into the mix, I can see that as potential, you know, getting away from alcohol but into a highly regulated industry. It's going to be new. And, you know, I can see a regulatory practice not even lobbying for those guys but helping them navigate, you know, concept to consumer, getting you know, their ideas of what their products ought to be on a national scale through the federal process that's going to be created for them to legitimize and normalize their business. We've done that with beverage alcohol. We're going to need that help in cannabis. And there's nobody out there that could do that right now. And I think liquor lobbyists, you know, spirits lobbyists, beverage alcohol lobbyists like me are, you know, well-situated, uh, well-positioned well to, uh, to help those guys move forward. You know, we've talked on 80 Proof before about how so much of what happens in this town is so much more than just the schoolhouse rock version of getting yes. a bill passed. What's been your experience with the amount of time you've put in on the regulatory side of rules and regulations versus passing a law? Um, I, I would probably say it's more on the, 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 the congressional side, more on the lobbying against big issues, but then the regulatory side is, you know, I can't really, percentages are hard, but regulatory side has been more um, managing when the company's made a mistake, when they've got off the, you know, they got away from the way the regs look. They've, they've taken the, you know, I, I, you know there's no problem you, you utilizing an, a loophole to gain advantage, to lower your tax roll, to do something. Yeah. You know, but you don't want to be a hog at the trough, and then you don't have to go explain yourself about being a hog at the trough. And I've told these guys, or t I used to tell them when I worked there, uh, you squeeze the golden goose too hard, it's going to die. Mm -hmm. So when you get one of those, you preserve it, you protect it, you don't overutilize it, or you will, uh, you, you'll kill it. So, you know, I wouldn't say, I, I would, you know, we've spent a lot of time moving legislation over the years. We've spent a lot of time uh, keeping bad things from happening, whether it's a tax increase or uh, some sort of uh, uh, move against our ability to advertise. Um, you know, uh, the big tax bills over the years, you know, I worked for a foreign-based multinational, so we were always under target for being uh, segregated and, and frankly, uh, uh, treated differently than than other uh, you know U.S. Uh, based companies and, and you know so 
that that that's been a you know uh, it's been a balance. Yeah. Well, you know, we've kind of been dancing around this, but you've talked about your previous experience quite a bit. So yeah. let's just let's dive right into that. You were what fifteen years with Diageo. I was twenty two years. Twenty two years. Nineteen ninety nine wow. to you know uh, January of nineteen ninety nine to October of of twenty twenty one. That's fantastic. Twenty-two years. That, that's phenomenal. And yeah, that's, I'm, I'm, I, I've called myself over the last five or six years a lobbying unicorn. Yeah, because it doesn't that, happen. It doesn't happen. It's rare to live this long and do this long for the same guys. And I kept them fooled for a little bit. And, and you know, really, when I took the job in '99, uh, Diageo wasn't a known name. I was hired to create a Diageo footprint. You know, raise our game. Did they have a presence in Washington before that? They did, but it was, it was, you know, I was, Diageo was created in a merger in 1997 between two underperforming British beverage alcohol companies. Um, came together, I was kind of the next iteration of what the, D, the, the D.C. office was going to look like, so I was brought on off the hill. Um, so, you know, really, again, to, to create the footprint, um, and then, you know, our focus as a big spirits company with the uh, beer brand Guinness was to take beer occasions. You know, beer was the dominant, uh, you know, massive, you know, well over half the drinking occasions in the U.S. at that point were, 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 were beer drinking occasions. And our goal was to get one, two, three percent of those. And for every one percent of a beer occasion we got, we being across all of Diageo, it's a hundred million dollars to the bottom line. Well, we were really successful at it. And America's palates were changing over the last two decades. And we're drinking bourbon here tonight, and it's a cocktail culture, and you know that company's done very well, and a lot of that's related to the work we did here, in uh, again making sure they could advertise and, and you know uh, sports marketing, which we were very active in uh, starting very early on, mm-hmm. um, you know, and we've uh, we've had you know a lot of success uh, over that 22 years without making August National Happy Hour. Well, what were the big issues for you during that time? Obviously, tax is always an issue. Well, if we, we go back, I guess we go, you want to go backwards or forwards? Take go from, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go backwards. We'll start, uh, you know, two and a half years ago, we lowered the excise tax on alcohol, all alcohol, beer, wine, and spirits, uh, for the first time since the Civil War. We codified that. You know, we've always thought the best uh, defense is a good offense. So if you, 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 get, you convince these guys to cut the tax, you're highly unlikely in the next few years or even decade to raise the tax again because they they did that so let me ask you on that point specifically were you obviously you were picking up on a sign of the times but how difficult was it to move that debate from alcohol as a sin tax uh it it, it wasn't you know i think over the last i want to say probably 25 years since the last big tax increase in 85 or 91 let's say worth 91 that's 30 years. Gosh, the math is hard. Um, you know, our industry across, you know, beer, wine, and spirits has done a really good job framing excise tax and the alcohol tax, not as a sin tax, but as a, a, a uh, consumer tax, as a, as a tax on um, hospitality. And the people hurt most by it are the bar owners, barkeepers, restaurateurs, others that uh, you know thrive mm-hmm. and have the best margins on beverage alcohol products in their businesses so we had moved away that I, I I you know in the lead up to Obamacare there was some talk about an alcohol tax yeah. and we did some work with some oh center-right groups to to raise the issue of whether beverage alcohol should be on the table or not 
and we did some localized outreach into uh, a few key senators. You know, it was kind of going through the Senate Finance Committee. And this is what we would call grassroots. This is, well, it was grassroots a little, you know, very much uh, 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 advanced grassroots. Define that. Working with organizations who are like-minded on taxes and paying them a little bit of get you know them as the organization to organize their folks to go out and and diffuse the message and we did it to you know 15 offices and not here in dc what they did was send local people to their the the field offices of let's say senator grassley who was probably on our side anyway you know, about beverage alcohol but uh, you know, or a tax a tax increase or, or anything like that. But um, you know, their their whole thing was, if you go get a go deliver a message, beverage alcohol taxes are, are you know should be off the table regarding health care. We'll give you a T-shirt. So they were they, they basically you know said get a picture at the senator's office if you go to deliver this message. And Senator Grassley, and he referred to beverage taxes across the board, whether it be soda or alcohol, as annoyance taxes. Those wow. are just annoyances. <laughs> yeah. And we had annoyed him. And, and you know, very regressive. Yeah, and very regressive. Absolutely regressive across the board. And that, you know, so we didn't just do that to Grassley. We did it to Bacchus at the time. We did it to uh, several other, you know, leadership. We did it to, you know, and it was, you know, so activating against an issue like that. Uh, yeah, so it was not, so again, over time, I think we've morphed away from a syntax. It's, it's not, you know, we've, we've, you know, we've done enough in the responsibility space to not be equated to tobacco like some would do and a lot have done. And we, uh, we've prospered. Uh, so we lowered the tax in, in, uh, in, in 2017, 2018. We then got made permanent, you know, last year. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. It seems to me that cannabis is kind of in that same position, starting with the groundwork that hemp industry did. Yeah, I think that's right to some extent. I think that what they're, they've advanced, though, in such a piecemeal way in the States, you know, it's the epitome of putting the cart before the horse. Mm-hmm. You've got such variances in state laws. They are very much in need of, of, of some continuity and some uh, uh, you know, normalization for you know, just what a dose is. You know, we define standard drinks, an ounce and a half of spirits at 80 proof, five ounces of wine at 12% alcohol, uh, 12, 12 uh, ounces of uh, you know, beer at 5%. Where a legal dose of, of, of cannabis in, in Colorado is 10, you know, 10 grams, and it's five grams in California, 100% difference you know so that they've got uh, they've got a lot of things they have to do and i'm sure once they get their legislation right it'll move forward and it should 
we this is a legal uh, uh, product in in you know thirty some odd states now. So uh, you know, it's time for federal feds to catch up and 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 impose an excise tax and impose reasonable standards uh, through the U.S. Department of Treasury and FDA, whichever one takes the lead. It strikes me that either you're, you partake in alcoholic beverages or you know someone who does. That's People right. have a certain familiarity yes. with that industry sector, but how hard was it for you to get up to speed on the issues that matter most to Diageo when you started? Well, um, coming from the Hill, the pace of the Hill, and us having to be masters of so many different issues. So there's multitasking going on from what we were doing in the congressional office, especially as, you know, in a leadership role, understanding, you know, trying to make sure the boss was doing the right thing at all times and managing a multitude of issues. Um, hitting the ground with a, a corporate entity, you know, it was very different. The issues weren't, per se, more, and they're pretty standard. I mean, advertising freedom, lower tax, um, you know, then you get into kind of the formulation stuff and the notion that we were going to introduce a product called Smirnoff Ice in 2001 mm. that was a flavor-based uh, malt, you know, malt beverage, but it had 90% spirits and 10% malt and became a, a huge issue in the early 2000s where Diageo went toe-to-toe with the brewers uh, and you know, basically because we were, we were putting for the first time on a malt brand uh, a spirits label. You know, Smirnoff uh, Ice was a groundbreaking product. And, you know, we had the audacity to, to advertise it on the Super Bowl and other things. <laughs> oh, I remember that. Yeah, so we, we took a whole new new run at uh, television advertising for spirits about that same time. Uh, you know, so we were, we were changing the game. No spirits company had really looked to be so progressive in, in breaking some of the norms. You know that had been voluntarily taking our our advertising off of television. We, we, you know, Seagram flirted with it in the mid '90s, but really didn't get that far with it, and then acquiesced. Um, you know, we we again decided that we'd go toe to toe with beer again, not just in the market, but here as well, and we were successful doing that most 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 of the times. And we were little. I mean, it was just uh, us didn't have a big pack, never have. You know, so it was about crafting a narrative that made sense based on science, based on, on the way, you know, people drink. And, and, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, that, that's, you know, been a hallmark of what we tried to do. Um, you know, we worked through, uh, through a lot of different, you know, issues on that. We had some very parochial issues where we wanted to modernize our labels and put more information on our labels around, you know, calories and, and carbs okay. again taking on kind of the brewers because our, you know, our you know, vodka story is better than, you know, Budweiser's story when it comes to, uh, to you know, carbs and, and calories. Well, I didn't mean to cut you off because no. you were working the timeline backwards. Yeah, I got, we're all over the map. That's well, okay. What That's were some it. of the big issues before that? Um, well, we went from the first to the, the well, we went from the, the last thing the we first, really did yeah. to the first. Uh, in the middle, we had a major move of Captain Morgan from... The Puerto Rico to the Virgin Islands, which uh, we we never owned anything in Puerto Rico. Uh, Captain Morgan was bought by uh, by Diageo in the early two thousands, as we bought a large part of the Seagram brands. Seagram had a long term uh, uh, distilling deal with uh, a group on Puerto Rico called uh, Cerales, Um 
but that deal ended in 2012 and around 2006 or 7 we needed to start pathing a course forward for what Captain Morgan was going to be did we want to did we was you know in 2012 he was a free agent he could continue doing a a commercial relationship with the the distiller of a choice or we could build our own distillery somewhere else and, and what limited knowledge I have of this, well, there was kind of a rum war going on. There was there, war. Between Once, Puerto Rico and Yeah, I mean, we, we, we started that. Um, as I said, there, you know, the rum cover-over is this unique law that only only is for the, the, the U.S. territories, mainly uh, Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico, where um, the entire excise tax produced by territory-produced rum, so, or generated by territory-produced rum. So if you make rum, in the Virgin Islands or Puerto Rico, and you sell it into the United States, you know, into this market, the entirety of the excise tax goes back to the local governments. Mm. It's a, it's, it's, uh, it's basically was given to them. Well, in in 1917, Puerto Rico, and in 52, I believe, uh, to the Virgin Islands in lieu of a direct appropriations. So, the the revenue generated by that, you know, indigenous product. Uh, was you know to be given back to them. That didn't help them in the 60s when the U.S. sugar program went to, into effect and basically uh, did away with sugar production on both territories. Uh-huh. So, but they needed that revenue, so they, in part, started subsidizing the production of rum on both territories in the Virgin Islands in uh, in and uh, Puerto Rico. So. Move the clock forward to 2006, 2007. We've got this growing, you know, one of the fastest growing brands in, uh, in, in, in the world in Captain Morgan. We've taken it from a 2 million proof or 2 million case brand yeah. to somewhere around 7, 8, Man, 9. Who hasn't done the pose? Right? Yeah. Who hasn't done the pose? Yeah. Um, and he was a free agent. Well, at that time, he was generating. Uh, for Puerto Rico, about $115, $120 million of revenue. Wow. Well, you know, our contract with that, the, the original distiller was, was ending, and we had the ability to say what, what the fate of Captain Morgan's going to be. And, you know, we can stay in Puerto Rico, you continue to get that money. Or we could move to the Virgin Islands and they get that money. We ever we had it, when when we really decided to move forward with frankly um, the, going forward with this process when the Virgin Islands was identified as a viable con, uh, competitor for the business we had two separate negotiating teams one for the Puerto Ricans one for the Virgin Islanders who would come up with the best deal the port, the Virgin Islands we noticed had just given a direct subsidy to subsidize the the production of Cruzan. And, you know, when we saw that legislation, we're like, well, maybe we should go talk to them. And so we, we, you know, we being a couple, you know, me and an in-house uh, uh, supply guy in procurement and uh, an outside counsel I'd hired here in D.C. to help me understand what the rum cover over was, uh, went down to the U.S. Virgin Islands, met with the governor. And uh, we went into that meeting going, you know, what are we going to ask for? You know, they basically going to say, if, what would it take for you to, you know, what would, would you be willing to subsidize the production of rum? What would you give us, uh, you know, to uh, induce us to come here and produce Captain Morgan mm-hmm. rum? And we're bringing $120 million with you. And we're like, God, did we ask for, you know, it's going to be a negotiation. So 
we start high, but we can't ask for like 50% because that's, that looks like we're, we're pigs. Yeah. So we're like, let's start at 46. <laughs> 49.99. Yeah. So we started at 46 and we're like, and again, it's like we're going to start a negotiation. We walk in there, we do the thing. We say, Hey, you know, $120 million. Uh, we didn't really even have, we didn't think we'd walk out of there with a deal. We thought we were just introducing the concept. $120 million, what would you like? Well, what would you want? We said 46 and the governor said yes. So you walk into a governor and say, I got $120 million. It's legitimate, it's legal. You know, how much would you willing to give? And you ask for $30, $40 million of that 120 or 40s, whatever. They're going to say yes. There's not one that's not going to do it. So the governor was, was refined and understood. One of the great politicians I've ever dealt with. And, uh, you know, the, 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 I know the Caribbean gets a, a bad rap, but this was one of the, uh, we never were strong-armed. We never felt any, there was, was the most uh, above-board deal for, for the future of the, of, the, of the product. Before that, were they major issues, or were you spending your time educating decision-makers about who Diageo is? Yeah, we a lot of education. We, at one time I had Senator Durbin, when he was a House member, uh, you know, agreed to come see the Diageo plant in uh, Plainfield, Illinois. I had got out to Chicago, landed, and got the note that uh, the, Mr. Durbin's not coming. He oh. thought Diageo was a shoe company, oh. so there was some bad <laughs> staff work there. Uh, you know, so we 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 have you know, this was early, and he will not remember it, so don't ask him. You know, uh, one of the best things I did at Diageo with a, with a colleague. Uh, one of my great uh, friend and colleagues, Elizabeth Weiss, and now works for a competitor, Sazerac. We started Diageo House on Capitol Hill. I wanted to ask you about that yeah, because that's, you know, we talked about a couple of tools that yeah. you've used, advanced grassroots, yeah. didn't have much of a pack. But tell us about Diageo so House because that's well known in this town. Yeah, we, we, we were up against a lease uh, ending. We were the typical uh, K Street office, you know, 13th and K. Uh, and uh, got challenged by an old boss that we, uh, what do we want? You know, we said, we want to move to the Hill. Well, what do you really want? And then we, we looked at 101, 101 oh, Constitution, yeah. and cool. we're going to go there, and then, no, actually, it was the Jones Day building. So this was a bit, a bit way oh, back. Oh, sure. So they were right. just building, and uh, I got shown this gorgeous For space. those who don't know, Jones Day is right there in the, the Senate side, about two blocks right. off, and some of the more picturesque views. Got a great, got a great uh, deck on the on the on the roof of the place. But so we got shown this beautiful space, you know, share a floor with Comcast on that, you know. And then we went to go sign the papers, and they did the great okie doke on us. Mm. He said, "Well, Comcast decided they're going to take the rest of that that mm. floor. How about this 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 floor back on the back side of the building?" I'm like that didn't give us anything that you know so. We realigned and we decided to go uh, do something unique. We decided we don't need a really grandiose office. So we got a very Spartan office at 600 Penn. And then I did a memo called uh, Townhouses, this corporate jet of, of the 21st century. I like that. And, you know, and we weren't the first townhouse, but if you look, you know, up to 2006, one of the great those trusting relationships between members and corporate entities, those that had the ability to help them travel, were these corporate jets. They were, they were, they were, it was yeah. travel, it was 
great conversations that, you know, Diazio never had. Talk about a captive audience. Yeah, a captive audience. Um, So post-2006, when really that all just went away, when you were going to charge them the the corporate, the the rack rate for a first first class ticket, you know, that ability to do that for most went away. Um, So the proliferation of townhouses started. Now we didn't, we weren't in the front end of that, but uh, you know, we did have a very small pack. So, you know, how our, the, my boss at the time gave us a challenge. You know, how, how can you maximize this opportunity? What's changed? So we, our theory, the, the second title of that, you know, the corporate jet of the 21st century was uh, anybody can build a townhouse, but nobody can do one like we can. So we decided, you know, the first thing we were going to do was design the bar. You know, the essence of our company was its products, its mm-hmm. brands. And anybody that walked into that place got to see this showcase of Diageo brands, plus Guinness on tap and best Guinness in town. Yeah. We built that as uh, before anything else. Um, put a little cigar lounge upstairs, uh, about the size of your little mm-hmm. shack right here. Yeah. Uh, and it became a trusting environment for members of Congress to come, have cocktails, bring you know some trusted friends in, raise money. And we took our little pack uh, we're able to in kind the use of the the, 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 the townhouse and the product and uh, became a bit of a bundler. You know, we were seen as the host of every one of those yeah. those those fundraisers. We did about, a, you know, we'll, we'll do about 100 fundraisers a year. Yeah, it wasn't and, just fundraising. No, it right. wasn't. We did a lot of charity stuff there. We did our, our in our in market folks used it uh, when they were introducing new brands with uh, with bartenders around town. Did it for interviews for, for for folks in the business as well. So it was multi-use, but the most of you know most of it was for okay. fundraising. I think I read somewhere where you did something like 135 events in 2019 alone. Yeah, that's about right. The that's, before time. That's about right. About about I would say 80 percent were fundraisers. Okay. What else did you learn from that period with Diageo from an advocacy tool standpoint that you want to convince your clients to do? And swamp pilot. Uh, you're you're only as good as your last engagement. So consistency, being there often. Never settle in on a relationship because this town's fickle. It, it, you know they they want to hear you. They want to see you. You need to to be be out there and yeah. be consistent. You, you want to develop. Um, I've always called them hot coal relationships. Mm with our key stakeholders, whoever they, they may be. Uh, whether it's your home delegation or key people in leadership, key people in key committees. And was, and that, was that coal, C-O-A-L? C-O-A-L. Yeah. All over, I'll walk over hot coals for you, you'll walk over hot coals for me. Okay. Uh, and not in a transactional way, but it can be. I mean, it, it's, it, is, it is just getting the ability for my client, my friend, my company I work for, the ability to be heard. You know, we, we, there are all no quid pro quos. I think I said that earlier. But there's the ability to create a personal relationship with these folks and to be trusted in a way that allows you to deliver information in a way that is heard better than any type of cold call. That's what it's all about. That's what influence is. It's, you know, allowing us the, the opportunity to diffuse a message, you know, to move an issue. Yeah, with 10,000 plus registered lobbyists and almost an equal number of special interests shouting out mm-hmm. to get heard, 
what would be the best piece of advice you have to your clients to get the message delivery to where it needs to be seen? Well, one is to deliver them at home. Okay. Don't just do it here in D.C., but keep up the relationship back there. Another is break away from the cattle call. You know, the most precious dollars being spent in this town are pack dollars. Right. Those, those dollars represent, you know, dollars given by workers, by teachers, by whoever. You know, you're, you're representing them and spend their money wisely. Make sure you're setting your clients, your company up for the greatest success by utilizing that money in the best way you possibly can. You know, and come with validity. Come with, uh, you know, yourself buttoned up in the way that you can answer all the questions. If not, that you'll get back to them as soon as possible. Oh, I've always said that's one of the best techniques a lobbyist can have is you have to be truthful when you don't know the answer. Absolutely. Because, one, you're showing credibility, but, two, you're creating the opportunity for that second conversation. That's exactly right. So follow-ups are huge, and, and be consistent with those. But, um, you know, credibility, you know, and be humble. You know, there's so many people with who have, I, you know, self-awareness is one thing, but having, you know, yourself measured and understanding, you know, your impact and try to, try to do it the right way. Um, you know, you'll be, you know, be consistent, come with the right narrative, so, Mike, I have to ask you the COVID question. Yeah. How much has your approach to your job and your career changed with the pandemic? So this question was asked to me on October 28th, before I left Diageo, October 30th, 31st. Um, I had a team of eight people at Diageo, and we were, are still, but were as collegial as anybody that lived you know, around the country. We are friends and great colleagues. COVID brought us together closer via Zoom. We were doing Zoom happy hours once every two weeks. We were getting together. Uh, you know, just the camaraderie amongst the team, I think we grew deeper and stronger Good. during COVID. We worked very hard during COVID. Um, if you look at, even in, the, in our state, in Virginia, you know, cocktails to go is now permanent. Cocktails to go didn't exist anywhere. <laughs> anywhere, right. anywhere in America. Right. Anywhere in America in 2019. You know, and my team of five state lobbyists who uh, did an amazing work around the country with a great idea. We we were lobbying for cocktails to go and delivery uh, delivery cocktails and curbside pickup before the restaurants even knew they needed it. They were they were trying to just survive. We were lobbying for their alcohol ability and, and frankly step changing a modernization of, of beverage alcohol access in the States exponentially uh, in, in a year and a half that didn't exist. I mean none of this existed. So you know and I was just I was I got to sit back and watch a great team work. Tell me about the phrase, if it's not impossible, it's not interesting. All right. So uh, my old boss, a great, great leader named Guy Smith. Guy uh, came to Diageo after a great career at Philip Morris and various other things. Um, I always challenged us with that phrase early on in the career, if it's not impossible, it's not interesting. 
but it came to life in 2008 or 9, I can't remember exactly when. We were have post the, the, the financial downturn, Diageo had a bad year, and okay. we were going to get a very... It's part if of we the Great were, Recession. Yeah, if we were going to get a bonus, it was going to be very small. But, but Guy had some money left over for conferences or something, and we had just done the Virgin Islands deal. So he decided to do a trip, do a corporate relations trip to the Virgin Islands to, one, uh, spend some time together, two, in lieu of a bonus, three, show where you know, Diageo's walks the walk, talks the talk, we're big player, we're going to have a meeting here. Um, but the exercise around that meeting was to bring, if it's not impossible, it's not interesting to life. And we decided, uh, he decided that we were going to write a book. Hmm. And each of us would take a chapter and um, expound on that idea as it meant, what it meant to us. You know, and it was a fascinating book that ranged from pieces of legislation people had passed to uh, learning the multiplication tables, passing a driving test. Um, I had an opportunity to be very, it was very cathartic for me to, to write about an experience I had working on Capitol Hill for Frank Lucas um, that changed my life. It's still probably my most, uh, probably one, when I was most proud of a team and two, the, the best work I've done as a professional. Um, you know, so I got to write about dealing with the, the Murrah building bombing uh, after, you know, uh, McVeigh, yeah. uh, you know, created the country's largest crime scene. But before 9-11, um, you know, this terror, you know, domestic terrorist, uh, you blew up a, a fertilizer bomb in front of a federal building in downtown Oklahoma City. And Frank Lucas had just been elected. He was, you know, four months, five months into his first term after a special election. I was his... Uh, LD at that time, I had, went on to be his AA at once, you know, after a bit. But that. Well, how, so how did you turn that very public and somewhat personal to you tragedy into a professional success you're now so proud of? Well, this is this is a a, a really pretty amazing behind closed doors type issue on Capitol Hill, as public as the Murrah Building bombing was. A lot of things had to happen to make Oklahoma City right after the bombing. And um, what I wrote about it, if it's not impossible, it's not interesting, was about uh, a meeting uh, that took place uh, in uh, the Capitol. Um, it was uh, between you know, my boss at the time, Congressman Frank Lucas, and another member of Congress from Oklahoma, uh, about how money should be spent in downtown Oklahoma City. Yeah, I. Uh, I, uh, the first line of the, 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 the chapter I wrote uh, says, uh, how, much, uh, how much damage could I do with the yellow highlighter? <laughs> That's a great line. And uh, basically what was going on that day is there were just two different mindsets as to where, how this money should be spent. You know, Frank Lucas wanted to do everything he could to help downtown Oklahoma City. Um, and there were others who really wanted to limit it to just the bombing, no urban renewal, but the, the damage was so, so vast. So that day, the staff director of the Commerce Justice State Appropriations uh, Subcommittee basically mediated a, a 
session of dueling highlighters. I had a yellow highlighter. Congressman, <laughs> not to be named, had a green one. And we negotiated block by block where money could be spent uh, for CDBG grants. Uh, I can't remember what that acronym is. Community Development. Community Development Block Grants. And um, I guarantee you I won more blocks than he did. I knew where every window was shattered. I knew the historically black church off of Robinson had amazing stained glass windows blown out. So we won more that day than we, we, we lost. But it just wasn't about that. It was about how the office stepped up. Thank God every, everybody was at harm. But what that brought was a true step forward for, for victims, victims' awareness. Um, the, uh, the first time that uh, a uh, hearing a criminal case in the federal uh, courts was, was, was televised to allow the victims to see McVeigh's trial and other things. Um, the development of an amazing memorial in downtown yeah, Oklahoma City. It's to, absolutely beautiful, by the way. Yeah, to, uh, to commemorate or memorialize what was lost that day. To commemorate, it wasn't just about the loss, it was about the human spirit and how people in that community embraced each other and moved forward and embraced those that had lost. And, and uh, you know, so it was just, again, if it's not impossible, it's not interesting. It, that was, for me, an opportunity uh, to utilize that, just to write that stuff down. And, and what a great segue to the early part of your career. I always like to ask my guests how they charted their path, and oftentimes they don't chart it. It just comes because of the skill sets you build along the way. You mentioned working for Frank. You were chief of staff. Yeah, I was AA. The chief of staff was always, always in Oklahoma. Okay. I was always number two. All right. The difference being? Which, which you know, that probably led me to leave the Hill sooner than I might because I was probably never going to be the chief. The chief. I wanted to be in D.C. Okay. He wanted to have his chief of staff in Oklahoma. But so, you know, after almost nine years on the Hill, I made a decision to, to start dipping my toe to see, you know, what was next out there for me. And, uh, and I, got, I landed the job at Diageo, which was, yeah. you know, my first job I interviewed for from, from the Hill. I, and you I, got to Frank from Don Nichols, right? I did. You started with Don in town? I did. I, I did. Uh, I, I, and I started middle managers with him, luckily. I, I'll go back. Let's just go back. Let's go back to Oklahoma. Let's go okay. to Oklahoma. All right. You know, I'm, li I'm a little town guy. I grew up in a town of 3,000 people, 100 miles away from anywhere significant, uh, except it's 14 miles away from Ponca City, Oklahoma, where Don Nichols was from. Okay. But I'll get to Don in a little bit. Uh, I was an underperforming student at the University of Oklahoma. I'm sure Bill would say most all you students at the University of Oklahoma are underperforming, but that's... That's for that's, a different that's podcast. A whole, that's a whole other story. Um, and I was up against uh, intercession or summer school and needed to make a little money to just eat and answered an ad. Uh, the Oklahoma Republican Party was, uh, was hiring, uh, hiring uh, telemarketers. Oh, so really? I showed up and yeah. telemarketed for the state party, uh, but uh, I wasn't a good telemarketer, but they really liked me. And uh, about a few weeks into that, the receptionist quit, and they liked me, so they asked me, hey, you're not in school right now. And I was, and I was just, you know, shooting shit, playing golf, doing whatever, you know, uh, and then going and faking donations on the phone for a few hours, that, you know. And, and uh, so I said, sure, I'll answer your phones for a few hours, you know, eight hours. You know, it was a, a full-time So I was at the state party for a, you know, about a month there, about 12 hours a day. And then, um, and the state party chairman at the time was Tom Cole. Tom, as I was 
answering phones and telemarketing made the announcement he was going to run for the state senate. Tom is a brilliant politician, one of the great, great Republican leaders, a great member of Congress. I've been you know, great in the Rules Committee, I've great on appropriations. I, I, I got asked to drive Tom from Oklahoma City out way out west to a place called Elk City, about a two and a half hour drive, time and a half on a Saturday. Oh, sure. And you I got, got to do so, that. So yeah. I got to spend five hours with Tom in the car and um, drove out, drove back, talked a lot. Um, so a few days later, I get called into Tom's office thinking they're going to fire me because they caught the fact that every one of the donations that I faked uh, in night telemarketing <laughs> had caught up with me. But they asked me to, you know, take the next eight, ten months off of school and manage his state senate race because wow. he was going to run. So I was not a manager. You don't manage Tom Cole's state senate race, and he's got every political mind in the state working around that table. So I, I was the muscle, but I got to sit around that table and I got to learn. I got to learn about loose lips and sinking ships and, and the notion of, you know, and it was the highest, the, the most expensive state center race in Oklahoma history. We did direct mail, we did television, radio, uh, we did a mom's letter, a grandma's letter, we did, it was incredible and it, and it, went, it went to a recount. We didn't know if we were going to win that race, and we barely did. But Tom Coles, you know, started me down this this track. Went back to school, was a much better student. Uh, graduated with a better uh, better grade point than I deserved. Was going to go to law school. It's kind of off kilter after that. Uh, wasn't really lined up to start law school when I wanted. Needed to get a job for a little while. Ended up working uh, at the state legislature of Oklahoma as the assistant to the minority leader of the Oklahoma House. Which um, entailed what? Uh, it was one staff member. So at that time, it's a, it's a, it's a 110 member body. There were 36 Republicans, I believe. They all, uh, they shared assistants. Well, they all were called secretaries back then. And I was the one partisan assistant for the entire Republican caucus. Wow. So I was everything from a little bit of, a little bit of policy research, but the, the, the real research is done by a, a independent research bureau in Oklahoma, but they're hired by yeah. the Democrats, but now they're hired by the Republicans. So it's it's very partisan, but, but they don't admit it. So I was the, the one partisan guy working for the leader who was uh, he was now a federal judge, but that was a very good uh, minority leader. And you just work on some policy. You help people get dogs out of the pit, the, 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 the dog pound, you worked with, you know, you did a little casework. It was, it was a jack of all trades job, and I learned so much about pure wholesale politics, about what makes people tick at the, at the base level, the least common denominator of, of true politics. Learned a lot from the assistants, the secretaries, and their mindset and how to treat people and how to treat constituencies. You learned a lot there. That had to be a great it was. experience. It, it, how did you transition from that to well, Nichols? Well, it was... Um, I transitioned from that to transitioning from that because I was going to only do that for about six months to start law school. Okay. And it, it convinced me to defer law school and stay there for another year because I loved it. Okay. And then it was happenstance. Uh, my roommate uh, was very good friends with Senator Nichols' scheduler from college. And they were talking on the phone about something. Hey, hey Jeff, you know anybody might be interested in coming to work for Don? Uh, we've got this spot open, and just so happens I'm his roommate. Uh, they hear about me, so they being uh, Brett Bernhardt and Les Borson, 
I get the call. So Les and Brett, Frank Les's vision is to bring somebody on staff who knows what who their opponent is going to be. And if, so I was brought in. I bypassed the mailroom, and I was brought on to, to Don's staff as a legislative or interviewed for a legislative assistant job, which was a big jump, you know. And I was making, you know, a, a great, you know, good enough salary in Oklahoma. I had no idea what people made up here. Didn't even know what a legislative assistant was. Uh, they bring me up here. And Les and Brad interview me, and I, I guess they, they saw enough to let me go talk to the senator. Senator says, why do you think you, you could do this? Why do you think you're ready to come up here and work for me in, in this capacity? And I said, well, I've been down in the minor leagues hitting pretty well. I've been, you know, I've been, you know, a few home runs, you know, but a good batting average down there. I'm, I'm ready to make, a, make, it, make, make it the call to the majors. And he loved that. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, so I got that job as a legislative assistant and did that for three years. And then, uh, the special election for Glenn English comes up mm. and I called, uh, Frank Lucas, who represents, uh, many, much of that Western Oklahoma, you know, not very many people, but it's true Western Oklahoma. Um, and I said, Frank, you got to run for this. So I was the uh, first or second call to Frank to say think about it do this I think he, he was such a great leader down there and quiet unassuming and it was a tough race it was a you know the, he emerged from a very tough Republican primary went to toe-to-toe with David Boren's hand-picked yeah. you know uh, back when general elections you know, really meant yeah. something uh, and I, I probably one of the best things I did was actually kept Senator Nichols from endorsing uh, somebody in that primary every other major statewide Republican endorsed uh, a different candidate than Frank, but Don stayed out of it because I had said, if you endorse, you're picking the wrong guy. Yeah. And I feel real, that's another thing I'm very proud of, that uh, that we let that election, you know, he let that election alone. And, and Frank won and uh, has been, you know, he's in his 27th year in Congress now, I think. He got to, you know, from Don to, to Frank that way, Frank gets elected and I went over to be his LD and then AA and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, had a great, you know, about, about three years for Don, about five and a half for, for Frank. Yeah. So, so much of what you learned along your path was during what people like two of us, or Stuart here, might call the heyday of lobbying, even though there was a previous heyday that was the Wild West. Yeah. <clears throat> How did you translate what you had learned about relationships, dealing with people, representing your bosses, and then your corporation. How much of that changed in the post-Abramoff, Pologa era? Well, particularly given how much of the still spirits industry is a social Yeah, so I bought more drinks for people from 2000 or 1999 to 2006 than anybody in this town. You know, did we skip a beat or two? Yeah, I mean, in 06 and 07, there just weren't any rules, so we really didn't do anything. Once they came back with rules again, um, there's still ways to do it. I mean, this is this is where ethics reform, here's here's ethics reform in Washington, D.C. I can't take you to lunch and buy you Congressman Snort a sandwich or a steak, but you can take me to lunch, buy me a steak, and ask me for $5,000 for my yeah. pack. Mm-hmm. That, you know, again, so, the, the craziest one was when I was told I couldn't, uh, I, 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 I uh, would put uh, staffers at risk if I gave them Uber rides home from a party. 
Uh, so that was that was interesting. You know, be creative, but understand what the laws are. Lean into legal. Lean into those professionals watching out for you and us to do what's right and understand it. Always get sign off. Yeah. And, and you know, don't don't do anything before you've crossed the you know, T's and dotted all the I's because that's that's the paramount most important. Yeah, that's how you protect your brand, protect your boss, protect uh, yourself. Well, Mike, this has been a great conversation. You're a wonderful guest, Bert. And all the best in your new career. Thank you. I have no doubt it's your continued success. I hope so. Hey, you know. As we wind this up, I just I want to ask you if you were approached by some newbie to town or a young professional looking to make the transition to a career like you've had, what's a salient piece of advice? Don't be afraid of trying to eat a dinosaur. Don't be afraid of t- trying to take a mountain. Put yourself in the position to do big things. Be uh, smart about uh, who you are. Be self-aware. Uh, I-, I would bet probably one of the best skills I have had over the 30 some odd years I've been here is understanding my gaps recognizing where I'm a little weak and being able to fill in with those smart people around me to help me strive and thrive and be better tomorrow than I was today but just don't don't be don't be afraid you know take the big bite and see what happens fantastic advice all the best to you again thank you so much for joining me tonight Thank you all for listening in. Take care. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.